Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacking. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good. Friends, welcome to this special ANU Canberra Times Meet the Author event here in the heart of ANU at the Canberra Cultural Centre. This, uh, and I'm glad to see so many people out here tonight on a uh, what is a fairly brisk Canberra evening. They say you shouldn't put your heater on before Anzac Day, but I know I would tonight. I'm sure many of you will be doing so too. Um, as I say, this is also a special live recording of Democracy Sausage, the podcast that Colin just mentioned. Uh, and it may, in fact, be the way you're listening to it right now. I'm Mark Kenny from ANU's Australian Studies Institute, and can I begin by acknowledging this country's First Nations peoples and pay my respect to their elders past and present. We, of course, meet on Ngunnawal and Ngambri land, the sovereignty over which has never been, never been ceded. Tonight, it's my great pleasure to welcome back to the ANU a respected Wiradjuri and Kamilaroi man, the fabulously productive Stan Grant, author, journalist and public intellectual. We're here, of course, to discuss Stan's latest book, With the Falling of the Dusk. But Stan, can I first take you back to the stage at Llewellyn Hall where we last did one of these events for another of your books when a young Canberran asked you about the national anthem, Advanced Australia Fair. I'm not sure if you remember, but you gave a very pertinent and very quick response to the question where you pointed out that Declaring we were young and free was a bit rich, given that we were the, you know... How the, prescient was I? <laughs> yeah, well, th- that was going to be my question. It was going to be, um, we're now one and free. Uh, is that better? Is it all fixed? No, I don't think you fixed it with, with, with a single word. And, um, you know, it, it is part, Mark, of, uh, of our reckoning. It is part of our maturation, I think. We are even people who may have not even wanted to turn their mind to such things or not have entertained the idea of a single change to the anthem uh, are now being persuaded otherwise. But it is a, um, it's a symbolic thing. Um, it, it's been welcomed by some Indigenous people. Other people have 
a, a much more hardline view. But it is part of it's part of the journey, and and it's an indication, I suppose, of the capacity for change within a liberal democracy as it wrestles with its own sense of identity. Well, it was certainly done rather painlessly, wasn't it, in the end, at least in as much as it represents anything at all. It uh, it, it sort of happened by fiat rather quickly. Uh, I suppose, as you say, it is only one word. Um, the other thing in that phrase, uh, young and free, freedom is a very interesting concept uh, and you take it up quite a lot in the early stage of this new book with the falling of the dusk. Um, can we just stick with that for a moment? Yeah. Uh, because you interplay it with the uh, the pressures that freedom or, or, or sort of liberalism is under, principles of liberalism are under as a result of the coronavirus mm. pandemic. Um, and, and I find this quite an interesting discussion because it plays into a narrative that's been around that we are perhaps not the larrikin nation that that uh, um, that scoffs at authority. We're in fact an obedient people. Mm. It's not a narrative I must say I'm entirely convinced about. But uh, we're here to hear your views rather than mine, I suppose. So let's let's hear yours. Yeah, you know, I, I I do tackle this very early on in the book, and I suppose all of my books, to some degree, um, everything I think about really revolves around this question of freedom. How free are we? Who determines what freedom is? What is the quest for human freedom? The various manifestations that human freedom has taken, even tyrannical ideas, utopian ideas that are presented as a means of obtaining freedom for people. And I looked at coronavirus because this moment, I think, has revealed and accelerated so many of the the fault lines of our world, particularly the fault line between liberal democracy and authoritarianism. And we know that that the the virus emerged out of China. Uh, We know that China, an authoritarian country, was able very quickly to get on top of that and impose very strict and draconian measures to achieve it and then very quickly emerge from that with an economy that's robust and growing and growing faster than any other developed economy in the world. In the Western liberal democratic world, it revealed the limits of our freedom. It revealed the capacity of our liberal democratic systems to deal with an emergency, with a crisis, and reveal where those things work well and where they don't. In the United States, obviously, the devastation of coronavirus revealed just how unwieldy the political system is there and touched on something that the Americans see as essential about themselves, and that is that idea of their individual liberty, their individual freedom. And the mask became a symbol of that individual freedom that they would not in any way surrender, even if it meant getting a potentially fatal illness or passing it on to someone else. In Australia, which is a much more social democratic idea of liberal democracy, a smaller country, a more isolated country, um, and, and I would argue our level of compliance to, to the, the lockdown that we went through was a much more virtuous one than the sort of devil-may-care attachment to freedom that we saw in other parts of the world. But to your question, Mark, I think it does go to an idea of our of the conception of who we are, that we are this larrikin nation, you know, that we are these freewheeling, laissez-faire people. I think 
history will tell us that we very quickly do fall into line. We are very quick to comply with things. In this case, it is a virtue, but we know in other times in history that compliance can also lead to tyranny. And that was one of the things I wanted to sort of tease out in that chapter. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting idea because, I, I, I mean, my conception of it is more that uh, we weren't so much um, complicit as convinced. That mm. is, convinced by the evidence. We were Our governments were listening to experts. Our governments were responding to science and to medical uh, advice uh, in a way that I think most Australians wanted them to do. And there was a lot of self-interest in, you know, sort of dividing, mm. in retreating to our houses. It was a, it was a, a, a kind of a, a novel moment, no, no question. Um, but I, I, I bristle somewhat at the idea that we would. I'm not saying you're. This mm. is. I'm not trying to simplify mm. your argument there, but, but uh, certainly there was a, a, a narrative running, particularly in the right wing press, that, um, that we were somehow, uh, you know, just uh, obedient. Uh, and that we'd sort of surrendered on a permanent basis, uh, you know, cu- fundamental yeah. freedoms. I mean, we we surrender fundamental freedoms in the th- face of a bushfire. We su- yeah. surrender them uh, in the face well, of a when, flood. When we put a seatbelt on. Or know? when we put a seatbelt on. Or when we agree to stop. I mean, when you're travelling north, someone travelling west mm. might have the right of way. Um, yeah. You know, you surrender your right to move. I mean, Yeah, and, and, and I think that does, Mark, go to the faith and trust that we have in our liberal democracy, the faith in our institutions, the faith in our government. I mean, each time we go to an election, um, half of us or even more do not get the government that we voted for. And yet there is an acceptance here in Australia that, that the institutions and the traditions of that government will work effectively even for those people who did not vote for that particular government. It's probably a a reflection of a few things. It's a reflection of how small our population is. It's also a reflection, I think, of how wealthy we are uh, and that that we are not a a laissez-faire economy such as the United States. We have a strong social safety net and I think that leads to a strong sense of... um, of, of mutual responsibility. Um, but, you know, if we look back to other things, such as the, the sort of more draconian measures that emerged out of the, after the 9-11 terrorist attack, the impositions on press freedom, um, the things that we also are prepared to accept and become very quickly very used to. I think we also, in our comfort, are very... Uh, we very easily accept a level of suffering in our society that we really don't do much about and none more so than the suffering of Indigenous people who in a country that has been able to pull out all the stops, survive the worst of coronavirus, bring in measures such as JobKeeper and JobSeeker, have a functioning health system, get to the other side of that with a robust economy that's growing strongly and yet Aboriginal people at the end of this will still die 10 years younger and still be locked up in appalling numbers, uh, still suffering diseases that no longer even afflict the majority of the population. And I think that on the one hand those things that work to the better of our society, that make us a virtuous democratic nation, can make us complacent uh, and, and blind to the ongoing suffering of other people who don't share in the best of the country. Indeed. Now, speaking of freedom, you choose to begin this book 
with a an anecdote, really, a story about your train trip into mm. China. Mm. And it's it's really a, a beautiful piece of writing, very evocative of what you were feeling and thinking at the time. Um, talk us through why you – why you. I mean, China is a very strong theme through this book. It's mm. not mentioned on the cover. Mm. There's a plethora of books, as everyone here would know, on China, and I think it's probably been about three that have come out this week that I can think of. Um, China isn't mentioned on the cover, but it's, it, it is the sort of spine yeah. of this whole argument all the way through. And probably the most defining story of my journalistic career. You know, I spent more than a decade um, living in China. I've spent more than two decades reporting China. You know, I stood on the, in the driving rain on the border of mainland and Hong Kong on the night that Hong Kong was handed back to China. And I've been fascinated by and continue to report on the country ever since. And I, I begin the book with a train journey from Hong Kong to Beijing. I wanted to find something that went to that fault line that I really wanted to explore in this book. And that is the fault line between the fault line of history, the Western idea, the Western conceit that liberal universalism delivers us to the end of history, to a point beyond history where all of the great ideological questions are answered in a state of ethical freedom. And we've seen, you know, the, the falling of the Berlin Wall described by the political scientist Francis Fukuyama as the end of history, the triumph of liberal democracy. But when I moved from Hong Kong to Beijing, I said to my family, I don't want to fly. I want to get the train. We took the train on, on Christmas Eve and we travelled overnight and I wanted my kids to get a sense of this land and the land opening up to them. It's also a reflection of my Indigenous heritage that that sense of a country becoming a part of you is really important to me. And I remember waking on that morning, Christmas morning, and looking out the window and seeing a lone man ploughing a field. And in that moment, it really symbolised something for me, that here I was, an Aboriginal man coming from the West, who is not of the West, but in the West, looking out at a man who is most definitely not of the West, but in a country that is rising to challenge the West. And why China is a recurring theme throughout the book is that I think this moment, this moment of a rising authoritarian China and a declining Western liberal order, it delivers us to a point in our history that we have not seen since the birth of modernity, since the 17th, 18th century enlightenment. In, by the end of this decade, according to the current trajectory, the, single, the biggest economy in the world will be an authoritarian country that rejects the idea of liberal freedom. It is inverting the orthodoxy that as you become more rich, you inevitably become more free. It is challenging the idea of liberal universalism, that there is a place beyond history that writes its own history. And I think that is an existential moment for our world. We will live in a different world from that point on. And we are struggling at the moment with how to deal with that. And that's why I wanted to begin in China, because that anchors this hinge point of history. Do you think that 
broadly speaking, people haven't come to grips with that yet. They, 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 mm-hmm. they just simply haven't understood yeah. the sort of basic arithmetic of it, if nothing else. Yeah, you know, Mark, you and I would know from our time reporting these things that the, the idea in the West, and I think it, it's, it's an idea that's still prevalent in the West, is that China would eventually go the way of the Soviet Union. That there is no way that the Communist Party of China could actually survive as its country grew more powerful, more rich, and would demand ever more freedoms. But this is this goes to the ingenuity of the Communist Party. The ability to lift people out of poverty, the ability to reform the country, to adapt aspects of market capitalism while doubling down on the power of the state. You would think, and history tells us, that as, people, as countries become more rich, they do inevitably bend towards freedom. But what the Chinese Communist Party has been able to do is to bind its emerging middle class to the continuation of the party itself. The party is central to everything in the country. The party answers all the questions. And it again goes to a theme in my book. Are we as a people, in fact, despite the the liberal orthodoxy that we bend to freedom, are we as a people more likely to surrender our freedom in return for security. Um, Coronavirus is is absolutely an example of that. Are we more likely to do that? And at what point does that become tyrannical? And I think that is such a fundamental challenge for the Western mind and a Western order to get their hands around, that there is a viable alternative that rejects those fundamental ideas of liberal democracy and freedom as we in the West have understood them and that China is delivering us absolutely to this inflection point. It's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, would you jump in a cage to get away from a tiger? I think you probably would. Yeah, well... It's a rational thing to do. Of course, there is the old, you know, the old story of, of, of Nazi Germany when, you know, the knock on the door in the middle of the night. And the Gestapo turn up and they ask if you're hiding Jews in the attic and we're going to kill you and your, ch- and your children unless you hand them over. Um, what are we prepared to acquiesce to? What are we prepared, are we prepared to uh, surrender others for our survival and, uh, and our, our security? And right now in China, that question is being asked. It's not Jewish people, it is Uyghur people. Um, and people are prepared to acquiesce to that if the state delivers the answers that you require, the answers of security and stability and prosperity. And even in the liberal West, we make those accommodations all the time. Now, the other themes running through your book, apart from the philosophy of Hegel, is is um, this, well, I suppose this is related to it, but the notion of history as movement, as progress. Um, while we're on China, can I just say, uh, quote a little bit that you've written here about it, which I think is I'd really like to have you expand upon. You say China is a place of history. History for the Chinese is never over. That's the difference between a civilization and a nation. Civilizations have long memories, while nations are always about tomorrow. I think that we see that in our own country. The Australian nation born as it was in between the two great Enlightenment revolutions, the American Revolution and the French Revolution. The idea here that history is something you leave behind, the compact that most people make when they come to this country, that we will not fight 
the old wars of the old countries, that we will leave that somewhere behind. And the imperative to Aboriginal people that the price of reconciliation is to get over it, to leave your history behind. In this country, I belong to a civilization in a nation, a civilization with a long memory and a long hard winter, in a nation that's always turning to the sun, that loves the beach and the sand and the barbecue, and that there's always a tomorrow. And I think the same applies to China, the same applies to Persia, Iran, the same applies to uh, countries, Russia. Russia is another country with a deep historical memory. And in China, you see that forming the absolute core of the Chinese identity. One of the things that the Chinese Communist Party has been able to do to bind people to, to it is to wrap them in an identity of shared suffering and a permanent enemy, the West, the foreigner. They talk endlessly about the 100 years of humiliation, the opium wars with Britain, how territory was taken off them, the exploitation by the Japanese, the sense that China had been usurped by other countries, this country that believed it was the centre of the universe. And now that China is returning to power, its, it's, its resurgence is tinged with a sense of resentment or even vengeance for what the West had done. And you see this in so many other parts of the world, that identity is forged out of a deep, deep wound of history. And I think that is, that is a fundamental difference between the West, which is founded on enlightenment principles of progress, linear history, the nation-state, versus civilizations people of the soil who have deep, deep memories. You say uh, when you're looking at that man in the, in the field on the train that, you know, you go, you go through a number of kind of, I, I guess, debates with yourself about, mm. about his life and where you fit in and you're looking at the country and you even feel a connection at that point, partly because, as you say, of that journey. And elsewhere in the book I think you talk about this is how you always travel. You like to give the places you're going to yeah. a chance to invite you in, to make space for you, yeah. which is a really a really lovely concept. I'm wondering, though, whether there's a tension within you as a writer, as a journalist and a writer, uh, going back to what we were just talking about, between this idea of history written down, which is a very Western idea, mm -hmm. not exclusively, of course, um, but, but in some ways do we – I wonder whether you think – we write things down so we don't have to remember them. It's yeah. almost like we park them in, in documents, in books, and, and then we move forward. Yeah. Uh, it's like history is, is sort of, you know, travelling baggage only. He's a very, very smart man. You know, <laughs> I mean, you have absolutely nailed, I think, what is the essence of, of this book and the essence of all of the books I write, and that is that wrestle with my own soul, that I am, in many ways, I am forever in 1788 or 1770, that what happened to my ancestors happened to me. It lives in me. I was raised on those stories. My mother and my father, from the moment I was born, were telling me who I was, where I belonged, what had happened to us. It's the crucible of my own identity. And yet I know no matter where I go in the world, 
that identity tied to an unending historical grievance can turn toxic. All of the conflicts that I have reported on, Shia versus Sunni, Christian versus Muslim, Hindu versus Muslim, North Korean versus South Korean, the enmity of China and Japan, Pakistan and India, these things, the Balkans, these things absolutely born into people, fighting never-ending wars of the past that can so easily be weaponized and turned against, against each other. I see that and my struggle is to live free of that. Yet I also know that reconciliation or forgetting without justice is empty. So I'm, I'm of that and I struggle with that and I see that in all other parts of the world. There's a wonderful story that I recount in the book of a man named Jean-Amery who was previously known as Hans Meyer. He's a philosopher and a writer who was sent to Auschwitz and one of the lucky few to have survived it. And when he emerged out of the concentration camps, the death camps of, Nazi, of the Nazi regime, and living in France, he, he said he would never forgive. He would never relinquish that resentment. Resentment was a virtue. And to go to your point about history, he said there are some things that we, we will not place in the cold storage of history. And Hans Meyer, Jean-Amory, took his own life in a Salzburg hotel room. He could survive Auschwitz, but could never survive the memory of it and the resentment that he held on to. Yes, that's an extraordinary story. Um, I, I noticed that you, you talked about being between then and being between has also been a theme in, in, in Australia Day and in previous writings and it is very much here as well. Um, and again, just sticking with this um, this sort of moment of, of entry into China, at least, I mean, you'd been there before, but you were travelling there now to, to live. Um, and you talk about uh, when you're looking out that window, you saw the space between the future and the past, between becoming and being, between progress and eternity. And all this made China not strange but all too familiar. And I think Tracy, your wife, actually sort of puts it into a word for you when she calls it home. Home, Which yeah. is extraordinary yeah. on, on your way into this place. It was, it was that cold Christmas morning and I looked out the window and all of those thoughts were going through my mind. And um, I turned to her and she looked up, up at me and I said, Merry Christmas. And then she looked at me and she said, home. This was going to be our home. And it also goes to something else that I am a person of exile and, and I embrace that exile that I'm more comfortable with exile than I am even with belonging. Well, you, 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 you d describe this in Australia Day as being between ship and shore. In fact, mm. you say that of the nation, really, that we yeah. are caught between nation, ship yeah. and shore. Yeah, yeah, and, and, you know, I've always been attracted to the writers of exile. You know, I love that line from James Joyce in um, Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man where he's packing his belongings and ready to head off. And, and says that he goes in search of the unconstructed conscience of my race. Well, James Baldwin, who went to France to write because he said he would not be, in inverted commas, a Negro, let alone a Negro writer. Not that he wouldn't be black, but he would not be what anyone defined that as. Not black, not white, no one. And I think my search 
is to find that place beyond identity. doesn't mean beyond belonging. I will always belong somewhere. But I'm, I'm attracted to exile because it, it forces me to ask questions, whereas identity puts me into boxes of certainty. Now, that, that allows us, to, I think, right now to sort of circle back to why you wrote this book. Now, when we, you and I had a conversation on Democracy Sausage, actually, on, on other subjects, but um, we, we spoke about this toward the end. We, you were talking about 1979 being a very significant year. And I want you to explain a bit, a bit about that because most people hear about 1989, of yeah. course. You know, it's the, the year the Berlin Wall came down. It's the year of the Tiananmen Square um, crackdown. Uh, there are, you know, many reasons to sort of see that as an inflection point or hinge hinge mm-hmm. point. Um, for you, seventy nine is a really interesting yeah. year. Important for many many reasons. One is it was the year that I really started to feel as if I was coming into the world. Nineteen seventy nine, I was about to enter into the last year of high school. Um, I was becoming conscious of the world around me. It was an extraordinary year. So many of the um, so many of the pieces of the puzzle were being put into place. Think of 1979, the invasion of Afghanistan by the Red Army, the Soviet Union, which ultimately led to the rise of the Taliban, which drew fighters from the Middle East, including Osama bin Laden, that really entrenched the power of al-Qaeda. And you can draw a line from that to the attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon on and, nine, and indeed on to ISIS, really. And to ISIS. 1979 was the Iranian Revolution, which set fire to the Islamic world. Here was the return of an Islamic revolution, the likes of which they, the Muslim world had not seen since the fall of the Ottoman Empire. That inspired Islamist movements around the world. It also led to a sharp division between Shia and Sunni, as Saudi Arabia sought to reassert itself against Iran. And those conflicts, that fault line plays out in our history. Margaret Thatcher came to power in Britain, bringing in the era of neoliberalism. Mikhail Gorbachev, a young member of the Politburo, goes to Britain in 79 and spends five hours talking to Margaret Thatcher. She introduces him to Ronald Reagan and we start to see the pieces coming together for the eventual fall of the Soviet Empire. 1979 was an absolutely watershed year and far overlooked. And in 1979, The Clash released London Calling. The last gasp of the Cold War kids, that album that spoke so powerfully to me, that album that spoke about the Ice Age coming, the sun zooming in, meltdown expected, you know, that this is a nuclear catastrophe. London, you know, London drowning and I live by the river, that idea that the world was closing in on us. And that really spoke to me as a young man. So 1979 was so important. And, of course, in 1979, Deng Xiaoping becomes the supreme leader of China and begins a new revolution that would lead to China becoming right now the biggest engine of economic growth in the world and on the cusp of becoming the biggest economy in the world. Can I join those two themes together of, of Mikhail Gorbachev uh, and, uh, um, and China and the point you made earlier about how the Chinese Communist Party worked out how to 
sort of dial up massive economic growth, the creation of wealth, private ownership and the like without relinquishing political power. Mm. Was that the lessons that China took from the failures of Glasnost and Perestroika? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there's a really interesting period um, for, for Deng Xiaoping. When he took power, this was China was still emerging from the post-Mao Zedong era. And at that time, there was a lot of tension within the Communist Party about what they do with the Mao legacy, whether they leave that behind, repudiate that, open up further to the West. There were reformers such as Hu Yaobang who wanted these rapid market reforms. Deng Xiaoping was about to take a trip to America, his first trip as leader, and he told his speechwriter to write a speech that would basically announce that China was repudiating the past and opening up to the world, liberal freedom, liberal democracy. Democratic protests were breaking out on the streets. He went to America, he went to a rodeo, he had dinner with Henry Kissinger, went to a Willie Nelson concert, came back and said, put that speech in a drawer. He doubled down on the party. The reformers were pushed out. 10 years later, he is ordering the troops to fire on Chinese democracy protesters in Tiananmen Square. And who is in Beijing on that day? Who arrives for a meeting with Deng Xiaoping? Mikhail Gorbachev, who at that point is in the process of dismantling the Soviet Union. Two communist powers taking very different roads and two men coming together. Let's take a very quick break. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. I want to turn to to America because that's obviously the kind of other end of the seesaw when we're talking about global dominance, the rise of China, the the, the potential dominance of this authoritarian power. You've been very critical of the US and you make some extremely persuasive arguments. I don't think there's anything that that you're saying there that that is in any sense – I mean, it's it's very – graphically put, and I think you, you paint a, an extraordinary picture of a, of a country in decline. But you're also quite cynical, I think, about um, the prospects of the Biden administration doing anything. Mm. Uh, you think of, you, you point to the sort of old and, and, and tried faces from previous democratic mm. regimes. Is, is the decline terminal? Is that what you're saying? I think America has been delivered to a point that was always going to come. You know, if you look at this country that, of course, promises the American dream, that 
presents itself as the shining city on the hill, as Ronald Reagan said, this beacon of democracy, and yet a nation that is born in slavery and genocide, a nation that fights a civil war for the freedom of the slaves, and then after the Emancipation Proclamation and the death of Abraham Lincoln, then introduces the harsh Jim Crow laws that, that legislate segregation. That 400 years after their ancestors were brought to the country in slave ships, African Americans are dying at the hands of police on the streets. In Native Americans are virtually invisible in the country. And that a country that is premised on the idea of an American dream, that if you work hard enough, you can make it, now has a, an entire population left behind, discarded. To belong to the top 1% in America, a member of the top 1% of the country has wealth 950 times greater than a member of the bottom 50%. Power and wealth is controlled in the hands of a few. That despite the hope and promise of the Obama era, we saw the emergence of Black Lives Matter and we saw an increasing anger of the left behind, the people who saw their factories shut down, who lost their houses in the 2007-2008 global financial crisis. And now when I see after the, the Trump years, which were inevitable, given that resentment, that seething anger, that, that legacy of racism, that a populist figure would come along to tap into that, that, that fear and anxiety, to tap into that anger and to tap into that racism and take him all the way to the White House. For Joe Biden now to come back and say, all we have to do is restore civility or dignity or talk about unity, even in the face of the, um, the George Floyd verdict this week, celebrated and welcomed in a, a great sense of relief and justice. Joe Biden still says that, you know, this is, this is what America can truly be. But what about all those African Americans for whom justice will never be served? What about a country that still does not pay reparations for slavery? That America still wrestles with its dark past, its dark underbelly, and as Abraham Lincoln once said, the better angels of its nature. I think America has been in this situation before. It's been tested in civil war. The 1960s were turbulent, war, assassination, protest, riot. The difference now is that there is an absolutely viable authoritarian alternative that actually believes it's now on the right side of history in China. Liberal democracy is in retreat. Freedom House, which measures the health of democracy, counts 15 straight years of declining democracy and freedom. America is almost ungovernable, despite the chaos and the racism and the hatred and division of the Trump years, despite the devastation of coronavirus. 74 million Americans voted for Donald Trump, more votes than any sitting president had ever received. I don't think that appeals to unity and civility are enough. I don't think flicking the switch and going back to the past is enough. I don't think saying to the world America is back is enough. I think the moment is bigger than that. Redistribution of wealth is not going to be enough. There is a structural change in that country, and I don't know that it's up to it. And at a time when the world really needs that leadership. So you can see what I mean. He's not exactly painting a good picture of, uh, of the US, um, but entirely, entirely reasonable. In fact, I, I was just looking at, a, at one of your uh, quotes there. You say Trump exploited 
a sick politics. You're talking about this is the section where you're dealing with the feelings you had. You were on air as the yeah. uh, January 6 insurrection occurred, and you said that you were um, you you were shocked by it, but not surprised. Yeah. Appalled, but not surprised. Um, Trump exploited a sick politics from Richard Nixon's Watergate lies and corruption to Bush and Clinton. All roads lead to Donald Trump. His dangerous delusions and his crazed followers should only remind us that America has always teetered on the edge of collapse, a nation born in crisis, awash with bloodshed. Yeah, and, you know, you think about, you, you think about Donald Trump and we see that as an aberration. We'd like to think that that is not what America is. I looked at the Capitol Hill riot insurrection and I saw a, a very real face of America. And if you think about the, the Biden inauguration, you know, the, the message that, those, that we can put that behind us, that someone like Jennifer Lopez can sing a song, This Land is Your Land, without irony. It's not your land for the people who are left behind. And but, fact, but you've got to start somewhere, don't you? I mean, that's what Biden is trying to do. He's trying to rebuild from the, the ashes of a devastatingly destructive presidency, uh, you know, acknowledging yeah. that it's the product of all of those all of those uh, areas of deterioration of its civil society and sense of itself, of justice, of, of, of wealth, uh, yeah. you know, and so forth. But it, it, Biden is trying, is he not? He, he is, but if it is going to be a rush to prop up or return to the now discredited um, ideas of sort of neoliberal America, then it is bound to fail. And I, and I haven't seen evidence yet that there is an attempt to grapple with the absolute deep structural problems, that you can, you can try to present a more dignified face, talk about unity. There's even a redistribution program, you know, now trying to sort of stimulate the economy. Two but trillion dollars worth of two trillion dollars. taxes. But, but remember, he was also part of an administration. And when it was really tested, when there was a moment to make a real change, during the 2007-2008 financial crisis, they chose to back the bankers and no banker lost their job. No banker lost their homes. Those bankers are now back earning the same bonuses that they received before and those bankers are working in the administration, in the White House, and people have not still returned to their jobs. It is fundamental. Mm. And, and I don't think, I think even internationally, the idea that, we can just rally the forces. We can get the posse together and we can contain China. Yeah, this is a country, America, that has been battered by the wars of Iraq and Afghanistan, that has lost power and prestige um, and, and, and is wrestling with itself in its own country. It's going to require more, a lot more. And that sort of leadership, I think, has been lacking in our world. I would like to believe that Biden can bring us to this, to this point. I would like to believe that. I think that promise of America, despite the fact that it rings like a hollow drum and has the stench of slow death, to quote James Baldwin, <laughs> um, is still something you can hold on to. Now, I always say to people, you can't have a Black Lives Matter movement in China. There is no Uyghur Lives Matter movement in China. That what we saw with George Floyd was a, a, a broken... Um, dis dysfunctional racist system that can still deliver justice even if it is selective and sparing there is something to hold on to 
but the dream is so shattered and broken that it's going to require almighty foresight and leadership and not just a flick of the switch and go back to business as usual. I wanted to stick with this America and race question for a moment. Uh, You quote W.E.B. Du Bois who says, America's true faith is its whiteness. I wonder if I could get you to reflect on whether that's also something we could say of Australia. Oh, I think perhaps even more so. I think Australia is is um, is a complete settlement in that way. <coughs> Excuse me. We barely even talk about it. It's you know we we are the we are the only Commonwealth country not to have a treaty with First Nations people. When Aboriginal people who came together in good faith presented the Uluru Statement from the heart which suggested a way of marrying Aboriginal sovereignty that you rightly pointed out at the beginning of this has never been ceded, with the sovereignty of the Crown, with the Commonwealth, to locate the the demands and the hopes and aspirations and wishes of Aboriginal people within the Constitution. What more powerful statement of belief in democracy and liberalism could that be from a people who were left out of Australia's conception of liberalism and democracy? And yet that was rejected that 30 years after the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, which expressly said we must find alternatives to locking Aboriginal people up, that the imprisonment rate has increased 100%. It is just unacceptable. And in this country, we don't even have the debate. In America, it is angry. It is contested. The statues are coming down and the protests, things are on fire. You don't want to see the violence and the the upheaval of that on our streets. Surely we could have a better conversation. Surely we could confront these things in a way that is constructive and honest and open and we could tell the truth of our country. But I think the, the dead hand of whiteness, if you like, that idea in the themes of this book, in progress and liberalism, and a place beyond history, finds its expression perhaps in Australia more than it does in any other place I've reported on. Do you think we just don't do anything that's hard? I mean, if I reflect back on Donald Horne's uh, The Lucky Country in 1964. Mm. Second-rate minds, um, (laughs) a lucky country ruled by second-rate minds. Yes, that's right, and a victory of the unmind he refers to were the, the nature of our public discourse at one stage. Um, but what he's trying to say, and he explains this in the in the 1968 edition, he actually explicitly lays out what he was trying to say with the lucky country, and he makes the point that even the best things about the way we've operated our democracy, we essentially inherited. We took the path of least resistance. We inherited, you know, British democracy and a ra- range of those other institutions. So now we find ourselves at the in the situation you were just talking about. How do we reconcile, or or how do we actually make reparations for and reach a proper treaty with the people we displaced and engaged in the genocide of, um, we we choose not to have the debate really. We talk about ludicrous things like third chambers and limited mm. franchises. and it, 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 is, it is because of the complete nature of the settlement here. It's, it's with the planting of the flag that Captain James Cook was able to extinguish a hundred thousand years of history and politics and trade and ideas and culture and family and love, all of those things extinguished and we don't even begin to have the conversation. Every country right now in the liberal democratic world, it's being tested. It's being tested by increasing animosity, resentment, 
anger, people left behind, race issues, immigration issues, populists and autocrats are seizing power at the ballot box. We are seeing this around our world. And our liberal democracy is tested by its failure to deliver justice to the people who have suffered the most. We live in one of the most robust, successful democracies on the planet. As you know, you, those of you who read the book will see that I have reported from the worst places on earth. And this is not one of them, unless you're Aboriginal. And we can enjoy all of the wonderful things about our, our country, that we can succeed against COVID in ways that other countries could only dream of. And yet Aboriginal people, when the COVID crisis has passed, will still die 10 years younger. The failure of our liberal democracy to marry the hopes and aspirations of Aboriginal people with the dreams of the rest of the country, to be able to properly be accountable and representative to the most disenfranchised, the most impoverished and imprisoned in the country, is a stain on our liberal democracy. If you measure your democracy by its capacity to deliver to those who are most disadvantaged, then we fail in spite of all of our success. And at a time when democracy is sorely being tested and there is an authoritarian rising alternative to it, this is our test, as surely as America faces its own tests. Let me change gears completely. I want you to tell us about... Muhammad of Jenin and his vial oh, yeah. of or his little jar of soil and, yeah, and if you could just tell that story because it's a, it's a beautiful story in the, yeah. in the book. It, it again goes to that sense of exile that those of us who are not of the West but find ourselves in the West, where is our home? Where do we belong? And I met this, this wonderful man in Baghdad in, during the war. Um, he was a Palestinian who had fled his own country at his hometown of Jenin in the West Bank during the war of 1967. He'd fled with his country to, with his family to Iraq and war had followed him there again. We finished our interview and he was talking to me about where I was from and my background and my history and I explained to him about being Aboriginal and our connection to land and country and how I carried that with me in my heart. He went into the room and he came out and he had a little jar with some dirt in it. He put it in my hand and he said, this is my home. That's all he had left from the day he had to flee his home in Janine. He carried that bit of dirt with him to Baghdad. And now with the bombs falling again, he was holding on to that idea of where his true home was in a world of exile. He carried his history and his home in his hand. It's a beautiful story. Let's go to a question from the audience. Stan, thank you very much for your thought-provoking ideas. You've highlighted uh, uh, an alarming risk uh, of its, uh, our liberal democratic values coming from authoritarian China in terms of uh, uh, values of wealth. I'll ask you whether uh, possibly uh, uh, interest of safety and security are also shifting our views on uh, liberty and human rights. And perhaps maybe if those 35,000 of Australians who cannot currently come home, regardless of quarantine, are uh, a canon fodders of uh, our war, war, war with pandemic, and it's maybe a shift towards, uh, uh, or sh shift related to, towards our views on values as well. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, the question of human rights is one that's really contested in our world. Um, even the notion of human rights, where it comes from, the idea initially that as individuals we are imbued with 
inalienable rights, that those rights are God-given or those rights are come from nature? And how do we protect those rights when we form a society that needs to govern effectively overall? We saw the UN Declaration on, on Human Rights after the war in 1948, which very much located the question of human rights within the state. And then there was a the question about who belonged to the state, who had the right to have rights. What are the rights of a refugee? What are the rights of an Indigenous person? We see this played out now in China. What are the rights of a Uyghur person? Quite often, rights were, in the post-colonial world, human rights were monopolised and capitalised upon by the neoliberal states um, who used human rights as a, as a, as a cover to be able to, to plunder and continue to pillage the, 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 pre -col the, the, the colonial world. Um, the question of human rights has never been a simple one. It's always been in the eye of the beholder and often controlled by those who are in power. So in China, for instance, they would talk about the rights of Uyghur people in terms of the Uyghurs being lifted out of poverty. We're bringing development to them. We're sending them to these re-education camps so that they learn to speak better Putonghua, Mandarin. Why wouldn't you want to be part of the glorious Chinese nation? And that sounds like 1960s Australia. We'll take the children off them. We'll teach them how to speak better. We'll send them to school. They'll grow up and they'll marry white people. Why wouldn't you want to be part of this glorious nation? Same thing happened in America with Native Americans, sent off to dormitories and schools and their hair cut off to become better American citizens. You know, this tension between human rights and the power of the state absolutely is essential. And during COVID, we've seen this and we've seen this played out right now. Who gets to have rights? That's the question we, we come to when we talk about human rights. And the difficulty of the Western liberal world in trying to prosecute a question of human rights uh, and China's abuse of human rights when we still struggle with the reality of the abuse of human rights in our own country, the treatment of refugees, the treatment of the poor, the treatment of the disadvantaged, the treatments of Indigenous people. Thank you for the question. And it's really interesting, isn't it, that the, you know, the legal framework, whether it be 1960s Australia's legal framework or the legal framework in China now, is used to defend that. I noticed that when I put questions yesterday to... Mr. Wang, the um, deputy head of mission here, was good enough to come to the press club and I was uh, grateful that, that he did so. But um, defending some of the actions of the Chinese government, whether it be with Uyghurs or protesters or whatever, it's always put like it's part of uh, these are perfectly legal actions by the state, uh, which may literally be true, but it uh, doesn't really go to the, to the moral question of human rights at all. Yeah, it's that wonderful question that Hannah Arendt posed um, after World War II. The right to have rights. That's the fundamental question. Yes. Next question, please. Thank you. Um, listening to you, I, for some reason, found myself thinking about the ending of Vasily Grossman's Stalingrad. Mm, I've just finished reading it, actually. <laughs> where he launches into this tirade against the people and the resurgence of the soul of the serf. And it's almost as if he is blaming the people for Stalinism. Mm. Is it ever legitimate to blame the people? We blame the government, we blame the corporations, we blame the media, endlessly circling around that. Is it ever legitimate to blame the people? It, that's a really good question that reminds me of that wonderful line from uh, Bertolt Brecht um, when they're talking about, you know, changing government and, the, the, you know, that he said, what would you have us do, invent a new people? That you get the government 
that you want. You get the world that you want. You get the world that you create. You know, in Australia, who do we blame at the end of the day for the perpetuation of the suffering of First Nations people? When the Uluru Statement was rejected out of hand, I didn't see Australians on the streets protesting that at all because we were at our barbecues and our beach and worried about our mortgages. And it's not to say people are not decent people, virtuous people. You can love your family, pay your taxes, obey the law and still allow untold suffering in your own country. You look at Nazi Germany, which is a, a great example. You know, the, I, I talk about this in the book because it is the, obviously the most horrific example we see of a democracy. And think of Weimar Germany, which was hailed then as perhaps the high point of democracy in our world, an incredibly cultured civilization a civilization that had given us great art and music and politics and and usurped captured by the nazis not because they overran the country because they won at the ballot box they were able to work through the political process even coming from a minority but being able to seize power and the acquiescence of people to that power you know in mein kampf Adolf Hitler makes this chilling observation and he says that the German people would rather the ideology without rival than the promise of liberal freedom and he bent the country to its will. Could we say the same about China today where people who have been lifted out of poverty, who are seeing this rejuvenation, return of this great nation but are prepared to acquiesce to the suffering of Uyghur people or Tibetan people or crushing democracy in Hong Kong? What about the meritocracy of America, those who enjoy the best of the country while others are left to live lives of misery, unemployed, factories shut down, these urban wastelands, the rural wastelands? Um, we, we do create the society that we wish to live in and it's a fundamental question. Are we prepared to stand against tyranny, or do we acquiesce because it makes our lives easier? It answers all of those questions. And like I say, even people who are good people can find themselves complicit in the worst deeds. One very quick final question. Thank you, Stan and Mark. Um, this is a little bit of a follow-up. Um, how do you see us setting things right uh, with our First Nations people and how do you see that enhancing our capability to deal with all these domestic challenges as well as these uh, international challenges that we face? I, I can square that circle and bring all of those issues together. And I think it comes back again to that hinge point of history, that moment that we find ourselves where the reality is that an authoritarian country that does not share the values, however contested those values may be and however um, selective, um, hypocritical or whatever those values may be, those fundamental values that allow us to sit here in this auditorium and have this conversation, agree, disagree, ask questions, challenge each other without the fear of being arrested tonight. How do we defend those things in a world where those things are potentially under threat, indeed are under threat? I think it is strengthening the things that make us great. You know, I, I, I think of that line, you know, I, I, I come to, to, to bury Caesar, not to praise him. Well, 
I come to praise liberal democracy, not to bury it, but I come to criticise it as well, to sit here and say it fails us, it fails itself, and its failure makes the world ripe for tyranny. And where that fails and where we acquiesce to that failure, we see tyranny and we see the manufacturing of human beings. As surely Stalin once said, you know, that the the production of human beings is more important than the production of tanks, that you can take a people and you can weaponise a people. And we see this. We see this in our own societies. So when it comes to questions of First Nations people, when it comes to questions of gross inequality, when it comes to questions of racism, sexism, gender issues, all of these things, the rights of refugees, surely those principles of liberal democracy that we hold on to in spite of everything, that still has African-Americans believing in a court system that can deliver justice to them, that derives out of a political process and a legal process that held their ancestors in chains, that you can believe in that. That's something to build on. And the greatest the greatest bulwark to the rise of authoritarianism is to strengthen that democracy. But you can't believe that it will happen by accident. It's something you have to fight for. And you have to understand that it is not universal. It is not something that is innate. It is something you have to deliver and you have to make work and you have to hold accountable. And that's the process that we're in. And that's the challenge of our world right now. I think that's a really constructive note to end on. The idea that democracy itself, in a sense, hasn't even been done yet, at least not in the, in it's, the it's, full it's, way it should it's operate. The, it's the wonderful line of Jacques Derrida, actually. He said precisely that, there is the liberalism to come. Yeah, that's right. And we've seen it playing out with the issue of the treatment of women in politics. We know that uh, there, there's the issue of Indigenous representation. There are all kinds of other issues that you've, you've made reference to there. And all of those are sort of green pastures into which democracy can turn and become more resilient as a, as a, as a, as a response, but um, it's going to take effort. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, would you join me in thanking Stan Grant for a terrific conversation tonight? Thank you very much.